Hi there, listeners. Welcome to the 963 Universal Frequency. I'm your host, Esther Clare, spreading awareness with an open heart, an open mind, living life and being free. To all the regular listeners, thanks for tuning in. It's a blessing to have your support. And if you are a first-time listener, greetings and salutations. You are on your way to raising your frequency, sending out those vibrations and helping me spread it all over the world. So we got a really good episode for you today. I will be chatting with Tezza Lord and I have done an episode with her previously. You should check it out. It's a great conversation. We talk all about yoga and I found it very interesting. Some of the classes that she's been to, I've never even heard of some of these yoga classes, but if you've not heard of yoga, I'm very, very shocked because it really has taken all over the world. If you're not doing the ancient traditional type yoga practice there is a modern day yoga style that's just taking over setting new trends and it's it's i don't really know how to look at it i I suppose if you're not doing anything bad if you're not sending bad vibrations you you know you know (laughs) doing something evil with your practice i know there's some people out there that think yoga is a bit of a is perceived as a cult look everything is a cult these days i mean i go to my bar bike class i feel as if that's a cult you know the lights are down i've got the led lights on and the music's pounding like you're in a nightclub it's pretty much like a spin class so I, I started to to look into different types of yoga classes that there are. And Tezza, as I said, does explain some of the classes that she's been to. But I found a few that I had to look into further because I thought this is kind of out there. But, you know, each to their own. And I guess if you're making money off this type of practice and that's fine like I said as long as you're not hurting anyone spreading bad muju frequency vibration I don't have a problem with you but there is a class called a a dogger class so yes you can take your dog to yoga and I even looked up on YouTube to see if this is a legit thing and there are youtube channels out there (laughs) with instructors showing you how to teach your dog how to do yoga which i found surprising i uh i think it would be very frustrating you'd have to have a a very obedient dog i think to (laughs) to 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 teach them how to do the poses but you know i yeah i think you should check it out if you're interested and there is one called voga Voga is striking poses, like Vogue poses. So it's like an 80s dance craze with Madonna songs. So strike a pose like Vogue. Yes, this is a legit thing. So I don't think, I don't know if we've got anything like this in Australia. I don't, I don't believe we do. Snoga. Snoga, this is yoga that combines snow sports for example, skiing, snowboarding, or snowshoeing. So you can do yoga, I guess, as you're gliding down the ski slopes of Sweden. 
I don't know. <laughs> I think that that would be actually pretty cool because you'd have to focus on so many different things as you're going down that that ski slope. I mean, that that's that's that actually would be a challenge. So uh, probably not well known here in Western Australia because it doesn't snow here. But if you're someone that's over east, perhaps. Perhaps you can uh, book yourself in for some snow yoga. Snowga. Snowga. Stiletto yoga. Of course. You, you cannot have a dance class or a workout class or yoga class without stilettos. So I am not surprised. This is a thing. And I must say, look... <laughs> Wearing high heels and dancing is actually a very good workout. But for yoga, I mean, oh, I think it kind of take away your connection to the ground because I think you need to have that connection to ground. I know you're on a mat or if you're in a classroom, you're usually on concrete, but I still think you need to have that balance and i think it's really important to have your feet in certain positions because that's part and i don't think you can do that with stilettos on so yeah i i probably would not give that a go unless it was for some sort of bridal party there is also sup yoga so that's s-u-p stand up paddle boarding you can do yoga on a paddleboard. So for you paddleboarders out there, you can do poses on your paddleboard. Now, this is kind of cool. And I, you know, if there are classes out there, I'm sure that they would do really, really well because, yeah, you're on the water. It's just a really good environment. You're on a board, good way of balancing. Even though you're not on the ground, you still got that flow of energy of water underneath you. So I think that's pretty cool. There is goat yoga. Yes, you heard me correctly. Goat, G-O-A-T. Now, look, I don't have anything wrong with animals participating in yoga because as a vegan, somebody that doesn't you know, eat animals anymore and, and having that understanding of that spiritual connection when it comes to types of spiritualities and religions, yoga, I, I have that understanding now, but... Um, so in this yoga class, the, these goats are, are living goats, obviously. <laughs> you would hope so, being a Indian traditional pra ancient practice where they are against killing of animals. So yeah, these, these goats are basically roaming free and you, you strike your poses, you, you're in your yoga position and they might come up to you and basically it's just like this kind of connection that the animal has with you and I, I suppose because they're so familiar with people and being in an environment where people are doing these poses the goats just kind of come up to you and maybe they jump on your back or <laughs> 
I don't know if they jump on your back, but I don't. I just that popped into my head. I just this I envisioned these goats jumping on people's backs. It's uh, crazy, but I think they just basically they they must come up to the people and lie on their mat, stuff like that. I think there's some sort of connection that the goat has. <laughs> I'm sure there's a deeper explanation but i have i just haven't had time to look into it but i just think it's really quite funny i think i'm just going to go with what my imagination has created in my head because i think it's kind of humorous now tantrum yoga now there's tantra so don't get that confused because tantra is a yoga there but this what i'm saying to you is tantrum so t-a-n-t-r-u-m and that is basically just letting out your emotions in your your yoga class i think that that would be hilarious i think that'd be so much fun to just be in the middle of a relaxing yoga session and someone just starts bursting out into you know, profanity and just i just think it'd just be such an emotional class that i just couldn't help but laugh uh but in saying that, you know, maybe it's a really good stress reliever for some people and it really helps alleviate some anxiety and depression. So I shouldn't knock it. I just don't think I'd fit in very well if I was in that class because I'd just crack it the whole time. So that's probably not one for me, but maybe for you. Aerial yoga. I've done aerial yoga. I've had a lot of fun with that. I do feel a lot like it felt like silks i don't know if anyone's ever done silks before but silks is a, a form of dance where you you use these two silk ropes and you are pretty much an acrobatic dancer and it's a lot of fun much more than pole dancing pole dancing gives you a lot of bruises and it's kind of just fun to do it with some girlfriends but yeah meh and for all of you men out there that might be a little concerned or feel as if oh no i can't i can't do yoga it's for women well there is broga yes you heard me broga b-r-o-g-a broga yoga and i think that this is great if this is a class designed for men to to uh, get into their spiritual side and maybe they feel as if it's not manly to get into the spiritual side or i know a lot of my guy friends that you say oh yeah i do yoga but i'm just not very flexible and and it's true you do see a lot of the guys in the class and they're just not that flexible if they've not done it before and they you can tell <laughs> that they're hurting uh yeah why not why not go to a, a, a broker with your mates your your, your bros and uh, maybe get some flexibility happening there's a lot of different yogas out there i could keep going on with that but we really do need to get on with the the episode <laughs> uh Tezzo obviously is going to go into it a lot more deeper and if you are interested in her technique you should check out her youtube channel because she does a lot of free classes so definitely check out her youtube channel I'd have to say when I do yoga, I do see it as, well, not so much anymore, but 
I always saw it as a form of fitness, a way to get fit and lose weight. I never really felt the spiritual side or un- until maybe the last couple of years. And, and I think that's because a lot of the time I, as well, I'd, I'd practice yoga at home. So when you're at your home, you can really uh, research the moves a lot more and have more, you've got more time to, to connect. Whereas when you're in a class, you've kind of got to do the move and then get to the next move. And the instructor just cares about doing the class and doesn't, can't really, and it's not the teacher's fault, but they just don't have enough time to, to tell you everything about this pose and what it means and how you should be feeling. And, you know, so yeah, anyway, I'm going to start rambling again, as I usually do. So I'm going to try and and hurry up my intro, but I guess, uh, the reason why I wanted to do this episode is because I feel as if yoga is very contextualized. There is just so many different yogas out there and I think people are changing. A lot of people used to say, oh, that's wrong, that's right. But I've come to realization that there's no such thing as right and wrong when it comes to yoga. Like I'd said before, as long as it's not doing anything bad, it's not teaching people bad things and it's... uh, you know, if you can profit from it, if a new trend comes out, yay. As long as there's still that connection to that ancient tradition of what yoga actually means, and that is unity. And that is, you know, your individual self and the universal self coming together and getting rid of ego and letting go of attachment. And uh, I do think it's freedom from self. I think it's freedom from the burden of life. Uh, it definitely transcends the body and mind. And there's just so many different types in the ancient traditional world. The lineage of when this all kicked off, it's a little hard. I think you can find the the, the base of when it all originated and how it progressed. But I don't think anyone has the answer to who created it other than where it originates from and that's in India but there's just so many different people that are involved in the making of this practice that it's you have to do a lot of research to know who kicked this all off and I don't think we'll ever know but you've got you've got Hatha you've got uh, uh, Bhakti Karma uh, you've also got Tantra, Raja, Nada, Kundalini. And Kundalini is one that I actually really, really enjoy. Uh, Kaira. And I think I've forgotten one. Jhana. That was the other one, I think. I'm pretty sure it's Jhana. And so all of these main yogas are actually all interconnected. So... <laughs> Yoga is is really quite a broad practice and I think it's definitely one of those philosophies where you can come into any one at any point and start off kind of anywhere, really. I mean, I don't even think you need to start with breath anymore. I feel as if breath is just a focus point. You can start from from anywhere you can start from actually just doing the the positions 
and then maybe work on breath afterwards and then maybe learn about your chakras. So yeah, I do think it's it's a really good philosophy. I think it's a really it's really good for the body, mind and spirit, which is why I decided to do an episode on my podcast for it. And if you have any questions, please just send it through to the 963 universal frequency at hotmail.com and I will catch you at the end. Joining me today is Tezza Lord. And if you haven't been following the podcast or if you are a new listener, Tezza Lord has done an episode on the podcast before. And it's number 22, Hybrid Vigor, Awaken the Animal Spirit. But Tezza, could you just tell the listeners about yourself and and who you are and how you came to, to be Tezza Lord? <laughs> well, uh, well, Esther, thank you so much for having me back. And, and welcome to everybody who's listening because we are all connected. We are all family. I feel like everybody is my brother or my sister. And that attitude is a direct result of having committed myself to a life of the spiritual journey and um it 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 came to me as a child actually i mean i just felt there was something special going on and even though my parents did not foster this magical connection with nature or events and especially deja vu i was having feelings like i've been here before like i know this person i've seen them in a dream i i felt like i was on my own as i had these experiences but as i got older and i realized there were other people who also had this feeling i discovered that my birth family really wasn't um, nurturing that side of myself. So I shot off from my birth family and I pretty much was a rebel. I mean, they were quite worried about me and my parents actually thought I was a little crazy, but you know, a lot of people think other people are crazy if they don't fit into the little slot that their family had designed for them. And I certainly did not do that. And, and so even my name, Teza, is a spiritual name I gave to myself at a certain age when I realized, wow, I am really committed to this way of life where everybody is connected. We are all one through our consciousness, through our energy, through the love emanating from our hearts. And so I changed my name um, to Teza, which actually came from my surname. My surname, uh, when I was a child, my maiden name, because Lord is my married name. What a great married name that is. I like that last name, Lord. <laughs> yeah, I know. My husband, Carter Lord, I said, wow, that sounds like a movie star. <laughs> so I became Lord 30 years ago when I married my husband. But before that, I was Tezza Bates. And so before I became Tezza, I always went by my surname, which was Bates. And people would meet me and I'd say, hi, I'm Bates. And they'd said, Bates, what kind of a name is that? I said, well, that's my name. And then when I finally realized I wanted to commit to this new way of life, which was to really embrace the fact that this is a spiritual experience we are having on earth in the physical being, I, 
heard Spanish-speaking people call me, uh, Bates in Spanish is Batez, Bateza, they called me. And, I, and when I heard Teza from Bates being Bateza, I said, that's me. Mm -hmm. So 40-some years ago, I legally changed my name. And my parents were not happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually, you know, had to get used to it. Because when you change your name, you have to stick to your guns. And you change everything. You change your you know, birth certificate. No, you can't change your birth certificate. You change your passport and driver's license and all the legal papers. So whether or not people are going to call you your new name is up to them. Uh, if, they're, if they're clinging to the old way, they want to cling to you as the old way. But when I announced I am now this new person that has a new attitude, and it also coincided with me stop, stopping alcohol and drugs and doing a lot of self-abusive things with mind-altering substances, which I was exploring quite a bit. Um, that, that signified the day when I committed to living a sober life and really diving into my practice of yoga and meditation. And so that's who I am. <laughs> but I've also, I mean, wh who are we? When we say, who are we? We're, most people say, well, I'm not what you think I am. And today I know that this person called Teza is not who I really am. All of us are not who we think we are. <laughs> we get into this energetic thing when we, when we explore the spiritual side of life. And yeah, and so I, I write and I art and I'm a spiritual activist and I spread this consciousness throughout the world the best that I can by doing just like we're talking today podcast and we, we my husband and I have our own podcast Z Lord podcast and uh, that's that's how I keep myself busy and I do yoga every day what attracted you to yoga what was the appeal okay so today we're in the 21st century this is um what is it it's it's May 13th, Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th. 2022. <laughs> so just imagine a little kid who's like 15, 16, 17 in, in the 60s, in the early 60s, and they have severe pain from scoliosis. That was me. I really suffered a lot from having a, a bent spine. And oh my God, I just had to tape myself. I, I would pull, I would hold onto a windowsill and have friends pull me by my legs to try to straighten my spine up. And sent to doctors and chiropractors, nobody could help me. Until finally somebody said, why don't you try this? And handed me a book of yoga. So in the 60s in America, there were no yoga classes. It was very, very, very rare. Nobody practiced yoga. Yoga was new to the States. Um, there were a few like, very quietly practicing people, but I certainly didn't know them. And so I was a freshman in college in Boston at the time. And even in Boston, there were no classes in 1964, 1965, 1966, when I was there in college. 
So I learned from a book. And as soon as I started doing these maneuvers with my body, I had relief. I mean, the, the payoff is how you feel. So my very first experience was, oh my goodness, I finally got rid of the terrible nerve pain from my spine. I knew nothing about yoga, except they were exercises. So a lot of people today, they will go to a yoga class in 2022 to get buff, to be strong, to have really tight abs, and to, um, to bring themselves into something a little more workable in their lives rather than going to the gym and pumping iron or running a marathon. It's today considered one of the modalities of exercise. But little did I know, and little do most people know when they enter a yoga class for the first time, that yoga is much, much, much more than the physical exercises. The, the physical exercises, what we call asana, which means the way you move your body, is just to help you to become comfortable so that the body can be relaxed when it goes into meditation. That is the purpose of the physical poses. But a lot of the teachers don't even know that because today all you have to do is pay some money and do an online course and you get certified and you can be a teacher. But people who, like myself who are lifelong yoga practitioners, we know. We know that without doing the physical poses, it's very difficult to maintain a meditation position for much longer than a few minutes because you get stiff and you, you get crimped and you have cramps and you want to be totally unconscious of your body when you go into the spiritual realm of connecting with universal consciousness, which is called meditation. So the physical aspect of yoga, which is how to move your arm and your leg and your heads and coordinate everything with your breath is just the tip of the iceberg. The depth of the yoga practice is far, 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 far more reaching than the physical. And it's okay to start with the physical because it's enticing to have a beautiful body. And yoga practitioners have these long, lean muscles as opposed to the short kind of pumped up um, muscles that you get from doing weightlifting. Totally a different kind of physique as you probably know, because you practice, right, Esther? I do. But yes. in saying that, I go to yin flow yoga classes and some kundalini, but I don't actually mm -hmm. know what all the poses mm -hmm. are. I don't know what they all mean. I'm always following a instructor. And so, you know, undoubtedly there is just so much ancient knowledge yeah. and spiritual connection, mm -hmm. breath work, opening up the chakras. So to, to right. say I practice it, I feel as if I don't do it all at once, if that makes sense. I well, might do breath work and meditation here. I might do some of the yoga poses here. And, and then, you know, maybe if I'm feeling up to it, I'll do everything all at once. But, yeah, I when I say practice, I, I mm -hmm. seem to dabble in a lot of different types of yoga styles. Well, guess what? As a gift to the world, I put up on my YouTube channel 
a, a seven series class, which is totally free. And it's all about the exploration of exactly what you said. It starts with the very simplest introduction, going through the chakras, explaining about different poses. And it's a very simple approach. It's not at all you know, one of these uh, acrobatic type of things that you see on Instagram where everybody's just flipping out and, you know, going to extreme poses. So, and I've also written a book called In the Eye, and I is spelled the letter I, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then I. So the, the book is about introducing yoga and what it means to very distressed girls who are in jail. And I volunteered to teach them yoga and meditation while they were incarcerated. So it's, it's not really about the step-by-step -step asanas, but it's about like what yoga does to transform fear and anxiety into trust and love and connecting to our higher self. So yoga, Basically, the word yoga is a Sanskrit word, and it means to yoke ourselves to something, which means to have a discipline. So right away, a lot of people get scared, like discipline, oh my God, discipline. <laughs> that means that you have to approach it not as a frivolous thing, but as a discipline. Like if we are going to brush our teeth, that's a discipline. We do it every day. And if we don't brush our teeth, one day we feel yucky because our teeth really need to, you know, have the sweaters scrubbed off. <laughs> you just feel better when you have this daily discipline of brushing your teeth. And yoga is about that because it's a body, mind, and spirit discipline. You can't just do yoga with your body. You have to combine it with the stillness of your mind which is through the breath, by focusing on the breath, every movement is with the breath. And then your spirit automatically becomes shiny and sparkly, and it becomes part of your experience. And yes, there are beautiful scriptures that like the yoga sutras were written thousands, of, you know, hundreds of years ago. It's not really, uh, I think it was written in the 12th century. Um, but there are yoga scriptures that go back be before or around the time of the Old Testament. And some of the oldest teachings are the, the Vedas, they're called, the Upanishads, which is the very basis of the philosophy of yoga, which is taught for people who are interested in this, but only interested because you don't have to say, oh, yes, I'm going to I'm going to embrace the philosophy of yoga by going and doing some sun salutes with my friends on the beach and then going out and having some wine. Well, lots of people do that, but not serious yogis. Serious yogis like, don't make a party of doing yoga. They, uh, I, I even saw in the States they had beer yoga they have goat yoga they have all sorts of <laughs> nude yoga they, they yeah like beer yoga i mean hello they they're actually sipping beer as they're doing you know stretches with their arms it's ridiculous it's, that would be really popular here in australia oh I know. beer <laughs> yoga yeah so okay what to me it's funny whatever it takes to get people into something new is great 
and it's wonderful. It's like a revolution because when Madonna and Sting started making it public that they were yoga practitioners, all of a sudden the world opened up to yoga much, much more than before these celebrities gave it the stamp of approval. So I, I really do believe that we're headed toward the next step where people are going to be talking about meditation, who are the yoga practitioners, and how yoga is part of stilling the mind and becoming more clear about what really matters in life. And you just become a happier person when you are paying attention to balancing not just your beautiful body, but your beautiful mind and your beautiful spirit. We are all three of these things. And the emotions are really involved with the mental stuff. So for me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm hooked. I'm addicted to yoga. <laughs> do, you, do you just stick to one type of yoga? Is that because I, I imagine there's thousands of different yes, styles. <laughs> yes. I've studied I've studied many, many, many forms. And what I do today is Teza Yoga. On my, on my YouTube channel, it's called Ageless Yoga. Because you can be a child, you can be an old person. It doesn't matter. It incorporates many, many different styles. Now, for my own practice, I have my own private little studio here at my home. It's a haven. It's a temple. I call it the Santosha Shack. And Santosha means contentment. So when I walk in there, I am so happy because this is my place where I attune my body and my mind stills and my spirit just gets its daily dose of vitamins, vitamin Y, you know, yoga. Um, so I always heat it up because yoga came from India where it is not cold. And so um, some people might call it hot yoga, but, you know, I just like the temperature to be, so I get into a big sweat and the sweating aspect is so beneficial to your body because you're detoxing. Mm -hmm. So you can go in there with all sorts of nasty, you know, feelings of, oh God, I had too much sugar. I had too much wine last night. Not for me because I don't drink alcohol, but for me. anybody else. <laughs> and, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, you, and you detox. It's like going into a sauna when you heat up. Your, and I started doing this, um, you know, decades ago. I would practice yoga in a little tiny, tiny, tiny room where I could barely move my arms because that's the only space I had. And I lived in a place where there were no yoga studios. And I need to do yoga because of my scoliosis. If I don't do yoga, like after about two weeks, if I have for, forsaken my practice for two weeks, I am on the couch. I can't move because the, the pinching of my, my lower sacrum is so severe. But a lot of people have scoliosis. I'm sure a lot of people are shaking their heads now saying, oh, yeah, I got scoliosis. Even a lot of men have scoliosis. So I always have heat. I do my yoga in a bikini. So, okay, I'm a 74 years old and yoginis wear bikinis. A, a female yogi is called a yogini. So I always wear bikinis. I have a million bikinis and it's so much fun. And I used to do it in the nude, but because sometimes that gets a little sloppy. <laughs> but but um, That's awesome. <laughs> I know it's really funny. My husband also does yoga. 
And there have been times during our 30 year marriage where we have done nude yoga together. And it was like our date night because we're doing yoga, which is very sensuous with your own connection to your body, but yet we're not talking because we're involved with focusing on each pose because it's very important how you place your arm, what direction you're facing, how your foot is. And when you have been taught enough about the poses, you don't need an instructor. It just is natural. The body feels better when it's aligned in these ways. So you become accustomed to the way the body feels. So on a date night with my husband, Carter, we would be sometimes in the nude because it, it's comfortable. It's really kind of primordial. You feel like you're in the Garden of Eden, but yet we're in a cave because this is a little tiny room that we had years and years ago where we can't even raise our arms up because it's just like a trailer. And we have the heaters going and it's 100 degrees and we're sweating, but it feels so wonderful. And when you finish doing a practice, which is anywhere from a half an hour to an hour, depending on how you feel that day and what your body's telling you. When you have the knowledge of the poses, then you just listen to your body and the body will say, oh, I really need to do a warrior pose. Oh, I really would love to do a triangle. Oh, body, I, I need to go into child's pose right now. Your body speaks to you. And when you feel that you have come to the completion of this practice mm -hmm. when you're on your own, not in a class, you go into this deep connection between the body, mind, and spirit, which is called savasana, which means basically yeah. mm -hmm. a corpse pose. That's the word for corpse in, in Sanskrit. But it, I always call it the aware corpse because we are not dead. <laughs> we are just totally relaxed and our body's sinking into the floor. But our awareness is like a sparkling diamond. And we have merged with the highest state that we can get to as a human being right after you have done this practice. And you stay in that meditative state for as long as you want. Some people would be just a few minutes. Some people will be longer. And then when you are ready to leave, you just feel like, you know how a washcloth, when it's filled with water, you wring it out and it's totally dry. That's the way your body feels. Your body feels like, wow, every single little ache, every single little crease has been ironed out and I am good to go. I, I would like to know <laughs> because uh, first off, I just, for me, this is an accomplishment. I can do the crow. Now, I don't know the proper terminology right. for that, but I'm happy I can. I think it's bakasana. 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 Okay. But what does it mean if you can do this? Because all I'm excited about is that, Ooh. yeah, I can do this. But then I think, what is this move actually doing for my body? Okay. So that's a, a very specific question. So the crow, it's funny, my mother was a farmer and she, when she saw me doing the crow, she said, oh, I've done that since I was a kid. I call it the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of does look like it, the chicken. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of these poses come from people observing animals. Like 
the snake pose. It's called the cobra. Mm -hmm. It actually looks like a snake rearing up. That's one of my favorite. And the crow pose, which is really an accomplishment. Bravo for you, Esther, because you. it's 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 it took an me a really long pose. time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an advanced pose because okay, let's break it down. Let's scientifically analyze it. First of all, in order to do a, a, an advanced pose, you have to have, have achieved focus. You have to know that your eyes can't be all over the place. You can't be checking out the guy next door or the gal next door saying, am I better than her or is she doing it better? You have to not look anywhere because your gaze, which is called drishti, which means the focus of your eyes controls how your mind is. And when you're drishti, your eyes are focused on one tiny little spot, which in the crow is on the floor. Yeah. So you're focused on one tiny little spot. It could be just a mark on your mat or just a drop of sweat <laughs> that you just, <laughs> or whatever, it could be a thread uh, or a leaf. One tiny little spot, you're focused on that because you can't do the crow unless your mind is totally focused. Absolutely. So that's the first thing, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that true? Yeah. You, if, if you were thinking, oh my God, you know, I've got to go out and get ready for dinner. Oh, I didn't, you know, brush my teeth this morning, whatever. If you're thinking about anything else, you cannot do the crow. You, you really can't do any of the basic poses I, either. I, I could never... I was always thinking, does my ass look fat? And I could, <laughs> and then just one day, I just didn't think about that anymore. Even though I was in a room full of women, isn't it weird? Yeah, but it's true because that was your mind that was wandering. And no, it's very true because a lot of people will say, "Oh, I've got to be better, or at least as good as." Because people are so used to being competitive in our Western world. Mm. Yoga is totally non-competitive, and until people realize that it's it's just about you and your relationship to your experience as a human being, people won't get it. They won't be able to do the advanced poses. So the achievement of, of, of actually getting to an advanced pose like crow. So here we go. We're starting with the breath. So first you had to learn how to focus on the breath so that you're actually aware of it being part of each movement you do and you're breathing in and you're breathing out in a regular kind of fashion and your mind can either be focused on the sound of the breath or on a piece of lint that you see on your mat with your eyes but be between the focus of your eyes and the sound of the breath leading you you have stillness so in order to do a pose like the crow, you must be still. So then you're, you're talking about your hips because the crow is you bend your hips and you're getting your hips wide. <laughs> so if you have a big ass, it's going to look even bigger. <laughs> so, and thank God we have these beautiful asses because the more we do poses, they get like really good looking asses, not these floppy little things. You know, you get Jennifer Lopez asses. <laughs> so, so 
your, your, your feet have to be in a certain position, which is close to you, but kind of opened up. And your arms have to be in a certain position because if you don't know where the arms go, you can't do it. It's mm -hmm. like, it's almost like a mathematical formula that you're doing with your body because it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a perfect geometric um, configuration that every human being can do because unless of course they're missing a limb, if you don't have two legs or two arms, you would have to adapt, but you can yeah. always adapt. So you you're putting your arms down on a certain place and you're actually, even the way I teach crow is the index fingers have to be pointed straight ahead. They can't be out. I don't know if your mm -hmm. teacher is, is, is that kind of a teacher who incorporates even where the fingers go. Yeah, so if you have your fingers out, your, your pose is going to really hurt your hands. You'll probably get carpal tunnel. And so your finger, your index fingers are an extension of your forearms. And whenever you do anything on your hands, and, and the, so you've got your hands in a certain way, you've got your feet in a certain way. Then you've bent down really deeply with your hips. Now comes the balancing where you've got to get your elbows in that certain little place with your bent legs. Now that takes experimentation. Some people will start with one leg at a time, mm -hmm. getting that leg up to feel what it's like to balance on a crow. And that's, that's a major thing right there, just to go with one leg. Then you say, oh, I got this. I think I'll go with the second leg. Meanwhile, your core is working its ass off. <laughs> your, your core, which is called the mulabanda, which is like a lock inside your body. It's like a, it's like a, a contraction and your core is engaged. So your core is not your abs, the, the ab muscles, people who are not familiar with core, they think it's these rippling ab muscles on the outside of their body. No, no, no. Your core is deep inside your perineum, which is right in your hip structure. All those muscles coming together is called your perineum. So you're engaging your core because without the core engaged, you can't balance. And so your core is engaged and all this is happening. And then finally comes the day where you can get up on both your elbows are connected to the inside of your thighs and you have come forward. And a lot of people, before they get the trust that they will not fall, will put a pillow because if they fall forward, getting into crow, they will just hit their head on a pillow. And so, you know, until the day you are really sure that your core is going to be strong enough to hold you, then you don't have to have the pillow. And so then you're in crow and then you just maintain it, you sustain it. And, and so how long can you hold your crow? Uh, I timed it, it. I can do just past, I, I got, I definitely got over a minute. So I think it was a minute, oh. a minute and 10 seconds. That's awesome. That's really wonderful. Yeah. Yes. And so the next step will be your Too side much. crow. No. <laughs> side no, crow. Side crow. Oh, now, side so crow <laughs> when, 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 I, when I learned how to do the side crow, wow. It was like, oh, it was like flying because the side crow is a totally different animal than the crow crow, <laughs> the, the forward crow. 
And yes, a minute is great. You don't have to go to two minutes. You're ready for the side crow. And it's a tricky pose. And I hope you have a good instructor who can teach you that. If not, you know, you can look up um, YouTubes. There's so many people who, who offer free instructions these days. But the side crow was a big achievement for me. And I, I must tell you, I'm, I'm ending this conversation with dissecting that particular pose, which I'm reminiscing because I have a broken femur. I broke it in January and I am in recovery from a terrible accident that happened. So I can't do that advanced pose. And I look forward to being able to do it. They, I've been told by the doctors, it's a total year to recover from what they call a femoral hip fracture, but my hips have been traumatized. And so every day I have a new experience with yoga because of this trauma. And uh, like, I'm just now able to do a tree pose, which is very basic, but for somebody who's had a, a femoral hip fracture, it's, it's really a big achievement. So I'm, I'm like re-experiencing what it's like to have these tiny little achievements. So from my understanding, obviously yoga has a lot to do with discipline, focus, and self-awareness of our bodies, our mind. And when we connect, that is really the intention of what yoga is trying to achieve. So it's the, the balancing of the chakras to, to open them all up to make sure that there's no blockages, to have energy flowing. What, what should we be feeling when we reach this higher state of consciousness? Well, okay, let's talk about the chakras for a minute. <laughs> okay, so for anybody who doesn't know, chakra is another Sanskrit word, which means wheel. And they are wheels of energy that a human being, all of us, every single one of us experiences, is capable of experiencing. And some of us don't experience the higher chakras, which is the spiritual realm, but we all experience the first chakra, which is at the base of our spine. And it is an energy source, which is all concerned about staying alive. So everybody alive is, is, is experiencing survival. They know how to feed themselves. They know how to not walk into a burning house, hopefully. They know how to not jump off a cliff with rocks down below. That's first chakra stuff, to stay alive. The second chakra is about the creative force, which has to do with procreation, which is sex, and spiritual creation, which is creativity, like making art or writing books. It's that much of a human yearning that the second chakra awakens in early life. The third chakra is right around your belly button. It's called the solar plexus. And that's when a person owns their own power because a lot of people give it away. They don't trust themselves. They become psychic doormats, people pleasers, etc. So owning your own power is the third chakra, the level of, of awareness. The fourth chakra is when your heart opens. 
And the heart is the connection to the higher chakras. The heart opens when we are wanting it to open. First of all, we really want to have more depth to our living and we're ready to get rid of judgment and blame and shame and all that negative stuff that keeps the heart closed. Once the heart has been opened, and when mine opened, I could feel it. It was like, it was like these rusty gates going. Yeah. I had such a closed heart chakra. And when we do backbends in yoga, automatically the heart is opening. So that's why a lot of people, when they start doing backbends, they cry and they start freaking out and they have emotional experiences because the heart is opening without them even knowing it. So once the heart is open, then you come into the higher chakras and the throat chakra is next. The throat chakra right after the heart has been opened means once your throat chakra is open, you no longer can live in untruths. You must be aligned with truth. And it even sticks in your throat if you try to be deceitful or playing games with yourself or lying to another person. You are aligned with truth. The throat chakra is beautiful. And I do a lot of chanting, yogic chanting with Sanskrit. And that's a wonderful way of keeping the throat chakra open to the higher realms. The next chakra is your third eye. And that is cosmic consciousness. And you get there by being aligned with your higher self through your breath or repeating mantras or meditating or just saying no to negative thinking. And I don't know if you noticed, I pressed my third eye before we started talking. I do that because I want my higher self to be the speaker, not my lower stuff so i press it almost like an elevator button i'm ready to go up <laughs> and then the the final chakra is above our head it's called the crown chakra and that is when we have gotten everything aligned and we are just in god consciousness so that explanation is a journey that does not happen like in one yoga class <laughs> mm, <right. laughs> or it, it, it's a life journey or it could be an awareness journey, but some people it could happen in one yoga class, but that would be quite remarkable. And they would be considered like a very in, uh, not special person, but they have done a lot of work preparing for that. They have eliminated a lot of negativity in their life. If you go to the scripture, yoga sutras, which is what yoga philosophy is based on, there are no more than seven that the scriptures talk about, the sages talk about. Now, somebody's saying, oh, but there are really 41 chakras. Well, they put some spin on something like the beer yoga people or the goat yoga people or, or even laughing yoga. I mean, laughing yoga is kind of funny, but my husband and I laugh so much that we laugh at laughing yoga. And we, what's, ah. what's laughing? Yet? So you're literally it, laughing as yeah. you're doing the moves. <laughs> You actually, I have a friend who's certified in it. And so I know about it. It's you actually go into a class and okay, everybody let's laugh. Ah! <laughs> and there was a, there was a really funny movie I saw where this woman who was distressed, it's a, it's a current movie. 
And um, she goes into a laughing yoga class in, in England and <laughs> she starts crying because her life is a mess. And the instructor says, uh, can you leave, please? <laughs> it's like, it's so funny. <laughs> she got kicked out of the laughing yoga class because <laughs> she started <She's> crying. crying. <laughs> I can imagine that would make you feel really good. Laughing makes you feel good anyway. And then on top of that, with your yoga poses moves, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. When you think about it, laughing is really like pranayama. It's breathing. Like, <laughs> mm, it's a form of cardio. You're doing, yeah, you're. You're doing your laughing stuff and you're breathing in a more vigorous manner. Mm-hmm. And uh, for people who don't laugh a lot, I mean, it's really good to try it. And it definitely changes your mood. So my friend who became a laughing yoga instructor, <laughs> I mean, you know, she wanted all of us to go to class, to, you know, to kind of support her. But it was just like, come on. I mean, I laugh so much. I don't want to go to a class and laugh and laugh. I mean, to me. I, when I do my yoga, it's not that it's serious. I, I dance a lot. I put music on. I love uh, yoga type music and I dance and I start doing poses and I, I start being like this dancing goddess and I'll do yogic things while I'm dancing and I'll do ab work, rolling my muscle like a belly roll because that's part of a yoga, a yoga uh, asana for the stomach is actually like belly dancing rolling. You mentioned a couple of new age styles, yeah. but what's the weirdest and wackiest yoga style you've experienced? Oh, well, the beer yoga was pretty weird because, you know, talking is, I mean, I'm, I'm a sober person and everybody I know who's a serious yogi, they really don't even drink alcohol because it's not mandatory. But if you are a person who meditates, which serious yogis are, alcohol just puts a block. It just is like a brick wall Mm -hmm. between you and your higher consciousness. Uh, I've experimented with this, I know. (laughs) I'm not just talking from a book. I mean, I, I was a serious drinker, but I was also learning to meditate in my earlier years. And I, I realized I can't do both. So finally, the way my life went, I, I surrendered to the fact that, okay, I really like being in my higher consciousness Mm -hmm. and alcohol just dumbs us down. It really does. And, and that's why it's so fun because it relaxes people who feel tense and they, I'm not putting you down Esther, because I know you drank on your birthday. (laughs) (laughs) But tell you what, I felt terrible after my birthday, all those wineries. I, I, I regret the feeling afterwards. I don't regret the time I was. Yeah, with. because because you're 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 in an altered state while you're mm-hmm. actually uh, inebriated. Yeah. But guess what? You can get to an altered state through meditation. And the nice thing about, or the best thing about the altered state of meditation is there is no hangover, mm-hmm. and you can and you can get there anytime. You don't have to sit in meditation once you learn the techniques of walking meditations or repeating a mantra which stills your mind instead of having obsessive compulsive thinking about something Mm -hmm. which was my bag I needed to still my mind even during the day just anytime so I it's called japa japa is a wonderful yogic practice where you're constantly repeating silently 
a mantra so that you're attuned to this higher vibration all the time. And that's a yogic practice. So, so see, there's so much more than just the asanas. And the asanas are the physical poses. But guess what? The cushion that one sits on in meditation is also called the asana. So every single physical pose is named bakasana, balasana, you know, virabhadrasana. And they all have asana attached to it, most of them predominantly, because they're leading up to when you actually sit in meditation on your asana. (laughs) (laughs) You put your ass on your asana. (laughs) (laughs) So so really, uh, would you say that yoga is separate to meditation? Or should it be combined as one? Oh, you're in meditation. If when you're doing yoga, you are in meditation. You Mm -hmm. are, you are not goofing around like you know, gossiping with your neighbor, hopefully, or else your instructor is pretty, pretty weird. But you are focused on your breath. And anytime you're focused on anything, you're in meditation. If you're chopping onions, preparing for dinner you're doing onion chopping meditation. When you're driving your car and and you're focused on the road, hopefully you're not in a self-driving, you know, Tesla, (laughs) but if you're manually driving your car, that's a meditation. So anytime your mind is focused and you are focused on something, now a lot of people are multitaskers, so they're texting and they're driving and they're listening to music and they're talking to their friend. That's not meditation. That's, that's obviously multitasking. But when you're absolutely one-mindedly focused, that's meditation. So when you walk into a yoga class, you're getting ready to participate in a group meditation with other people. You said you turn up the heat when you do yoga? Yes, I do. I do. Because I love it. I've done yoga in, well, basically a sauna. So the the room is very small and Mm -hmm. you feel as if you're on top of one another or you literally have a foot in your face or an ass in your Mm -hmm. face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm not a fan because it's invasion of space. However, I love the feeling of heat especially when you're working out and building up that sweat. I know yes, a lot of people don't, I do. can't stand it, but I, I love it. And I'm a massive fan of infrared saunas. And I, and I, I believe there's some skeptics out there that mm-hmm. think that it's bad for you, but I think they're getting it confused with solariums. But anyway, it's another story. Yin flow yoga. So the classes that I go to, they're, they're just so cathartic you you're in this room where all the lights are out and there's just candles all around the room there's incense burning and the music and so yeah it's um it probably sounds cultish but (laughs) if that's such a word cultish however it's got the best ambience because all the lights are out too so you're not focused on what the next person is doing next to you and there's just this relaxed feeling and the energy from everybody in that room you can really sense it how do you feel about the environment playing a role in the style and effect of yoga do you think it's essential to have a particular type of environment 
Well, it's so beautiful the way that everybody interprets how they do their thing, whether it's going to a new person's house and seeing, oh, you have a really nice house, or going to other person's house and saying, ooh, they, these people like really need to like, you know, get it together. They shut the TV off, first of all. And, and I have been to so many yoga places throughout the world, wherever I travel. And my husband and I, when we travel across the States, um, at, at, at that time, like 15 years ago, when we went off on a long, long jaunt, we stopped at every little place that we could and did Bikram. Bikram, which is super hot. And I and a lot of people don't like to even say the word Bikram anymore because he's a rapist and he yeah <laughs> he he fled. Sorry, fled I was for, reluctant to say it. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you know, I call it uh Nazi yoga <laughs> because they're so strict. <laughs> I got kicked out of a Bikram class for trying to help my neighbor who was really suffering. And I was kicked out. And I said, young man, as he's kicking me out, I've done yoga since before you were born. And he kicked me out because I had the audacity to talk to this person who was suffering. And so anyway, every single Bikram studio that we stopped off at, and the reason why we decided to do Bikram is because if you go to McDonald's, which everybody knows is universally the same. You, you guys have McDonald's in Australia. Yes. Okay, so every single McDonald's is, you get the same cup of coffee, you get the same whatever. That's the only thing I get from McDonald's. I call it America's bathroom because I stopped to use the bathroom. <laughs> I'll, run, I'll run into a, a, a McDonald's and use the John, but they also have good coffee. So Bikram is like, it's like that standard with the 26 poses it does in the heat, but every single studio is totally different. Some of them have carpet, some of them have wood floors, some of them have cement floors, some of them have nicely furnished walls or um, you know pictures. Some of them just have mirrors, which you always have to have in a Bikram class or studio. And every single place is different. So I think the atmosphere that one does yoga in is very important, but yet it should not stop you from doing yoga. Because when I travel, sometimes I'll turn the heat on in a hotel room, leave for a couple hours, let it get as hot as possible. And I'll come back and I'll do yoga in yeah, really sterile yoga, un-yoga feeling place, which is a hotel room. And what makes the difference for me is the music. Now, Bikram, they never play music. They just, you know, have this regimen where people like automatons, they talk the, the procedure, the 26 poses, do this, do that. And they don't give any help to people at all. It's really quite cold and sterile. That's why I call it Nazi yoga. Whereas other yoga studios play beautiful music, like with Wah, who I love, Krishna Das, Jay Uttal, Deva Pramal, all these wonderful, wonderful Kirtan artists. And so I have an app um, where I can play the yoga music wherever I am. So what makes the difference for me is to put the music on. And 
I, I actually yoga music, kirtan music is my favorite. I, I play it all the time in my house because I love the fact that it's mellow and it's in Sanskrit and it's, it elevates my day to have it playing in the house even. What advice do you give for someone that's new to yoga that might be a little reluctant or hesitant mm-hmm. to give it a go? Well, to, to walk away from expectations is very important. To just be totally open to having a new experience is the best way to approach yoga. And if you're a first-timer, it's really important to just accept where your body is at, where your mind is at, where your spirit is at, and just go for it. And just embrace that wherever you are is perfect for you. You're not supposed to be something else. Wherever you are is where your soul, your spirit needs to be. And if you have a desire to elevate your spirit or to strengthen your body or to have peace, more peace in your mind, then you know that you came to the right place, to a yoga class, rather than to get involved with a gym, weightlifting and having a trainer and and even Pilates. I'm sorry, folks, but to me, Pilates is derivative. Mr. Pilates took yoga, the essence of yoga, and took away the spirituality and said, okay, here are exercises that I can give the dance world, because that was his world in New York City, and, and do these exercises, whether you have a machine or on the floor, but it, it's totally devoid of the spirituality of yoga. So somebody who's doing Pilates has not yet embraced the spirituality of their own lives because that's why they're attracted to Pilates. Mm, yeah, I, I did quite a few Pilates classes and I did find it more of a physiotherapy <clears throat> modality. So rather for people that may have injuries yeah. and uh, use equipment to help help you do that, I think it's it's a, it's a pretty good way of doing that. But, yeah, there's no real spiritual yeah. connection working with a machine rather than your own body. You're not using your your individual self. Yeah. Right, exactly. And more power to them. That's where they're at. And so I, I, I want to use the word sh- <clears throat> Shakti. Have, do you know the word Shakti? Uh, isn't that the goddess? The Shakti divine means divine feminine? energy. Well, there was a very famous author, Shakti Gawain, who um, wrote some awesome books. She's no longer with us, but she's Shakti Gawain. She, uh, it actually was her name. Her parents named her that. Shakti means that you feel this energy that's, you just can't put your finger on it. It is so special that like when you meet a person and they're, they just like, wow, they're exciting. That's Shakti. That person has Shakti. And you go into a house and wow, you really love being there. That's Shakti. And Shakti is divine energy. That means that there's a really special connection with the higher, the higher realms, the higher vibrations. So for me, I'm very sensitive to the Shakti. And if I'm in a situation where the Shakti is diminished or denied, I don't want to be there. No, same. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, you can feel it. Well, it can it, dro- it can drop your energy, your mood as well. Exactly. I feel like sometimes those people are, are vampires, emotional vampires, and they can just really yeah, they call them psychic the vampires. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and and those of us who are attuned to the higher vibrations, we can sense those psychic vampires more rapidly than other people who have not yet attuned their consciousness to the higher realms, which anybody can do if they want to. It's not like we're so special. We just made the choice somewhere along the line saying, I want that. And what's next for you, Tezza? How's the new book coming along? Is it ready to rock and roll? Well, the Shakti, woo! The Shakti is rocking and rolling, I'm telling you. The Shakti is is so intense in this new book of mine, which is fiction. It's the first time I've allowed myself to go into the fiction realm because all my previous books, I have four books out. They're all nonfiction, which is to serve a purpose, you know, to document my journey, to document my vision, my feeling of oneness with all in creation. But this new book, I'm not going to say its title yet because somebody might steal it, but it is about the divine mother, the female power, the, the female Shakti, because Shakti is always personified as the, as the feminine uh, force of the universe. So it is, it is a fictional story about how the divine mother delivers us a message here on earth that we must get our shit together, <laughs> that we must all wake up that we must participate in the healing of this planet now, right now. And it's very imminent and it's very powerful. And it's, it's, it all takes place around what happened at 9-11. And it's, um, I'm ready to publish it. And I'm now looking, I'm going to be sending it out to publishers and representatives. Uh, and I, you know, I'm just, just doing the very finishing touches. Plus it's illustrated, all my books are illustrated. So when I was on this camping trip, you know, I came back from just a couple of weeks of camping. I started the illustrations and boy, talk about the Shakti. When you're in flow with the divine energy, which is the Shakti, things just happen. So I knew what the theme of each of the illustrations would be because I had a list I took with me. And I sat down and I said, wow, I wonder if I can do this. These are like really big things I'm trying to put into picture form rather than writing about it. And it just, I just would close my eyes and wait for not so much of a vision, but an urge to just start. And the, and, and the vision might be like, like, like a glimpse, like I see a glimpse and okay, I've got the courage to start. And I would put my pen on the paper. And what happened was just miraculous. I mean, the, I, I did five of the 12 illustrations already um, in sketch form. And I just was mind blown. And that's because that's what happens when you align yourself with the Shakti. Teza, I got to get me some of that Shakti. <laughs> <laughs> When's the book out on shelves? Well, it should be sometime this year that it was usually if, you know, the publisher will, will put a date, but I'm, I'm just in the mode where I'm shopping for a publisher. So anybody out there, if you are looking for your next wonderful addition to, to a spiritual line of books, 
get in touch with me, TessaLord.com. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And how, how was your camping trip, your two-week trip? Oh, it was so much fun because, you know, I had this brokenness mm. and we were living in a van and I was really wondering, like, how am I going to be with my broken, you know, femur? But it's exactly what my body needed, because when you're living in a van, you're moving your hips in a way where you have to climb in and climb out. And, you know, it's not like just having the luxury of a beautiful mm -hmm. home where you just plop yourself into a chair or go to bed in a regular bed. So my hips just said, wow, thank you so much. And I and I just accelerated my uh, healing. And when I left, I was on a cane and I just stopped using the cane. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very pleased. Okay. Didn't see any Bigfoot. <laughs> well, you know where we went, Bigfoot, <laughs> we were exploring native American Apaches oh, wow. uh, where they where they lived. We went to a very, very specific place to explore the history of the Native American uh, tribe called the Apaches, which is Southeast Arizona, bordering the Mexican border. So we were following the trail of Cochise, who was this very famous warrior. And uh, his, the very last of the Apaches was named Geronimo. And so we were following the, the story and the history and, and it all had to do with American uh, history of our days right after the Civil War. And before, um, you know, the West really became populated. It, you know, there was a real big conflict going on between the indigenous and the colonials, as you know, because that also happens everywhere where, you know, the, col the colonists come and they want to wipe out the indigenous. So it was a very sad story, but we wanted to know the truth about it. So we immersed ourselves in the surroundings and we went to the mountain range called the Chiricahua, and, which is where all this action happened. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm envisioning The Last of the Mohicans. I've read that. That, that book. Well, The Last of the Mohicans was in upstate New York. That's the Iroquois, ah. which I know very much about too. This is just the opposite. This was the most barren, dry, harsh, rocky, like craggy and an inhospitable land, plus it's high desert. Mm -hmm. So you're at an elevation, whereas The Last of the Mohicans takes place in the Mohawk Valley in upstate New York, where it's very lush and vegetative and lots of rivers. This place where we went, no water, no water. Cactus, <laughs> nothing but cactus. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, what was there? So are there still Apaches around or are they wiped out? Well, there, there, are, the rem there are the remnants of this tribe, yes. But unfortunately, you know, they have been uh, you know, absorbed into reservation life. That's the sad story about the Apache. They were very, very war warlike. And their culture was not conducive to what was happening in the world around them. So for instance, their custom when they needed something was to go to their neighbors and steal it. If they needed a wife, they would just go to the neighboring tribe, even among the Apaches themselves, they would steal a wife from their neighbors. 
if they needed supplies, they would steal. So even though it sounds horrible to us in our modern day, that was their culture. But their culture did not jive with the evolution of humanity. So basically they had to fight to the very last. And Geronimo on his deathbed, because he was the last of the, the great leaders of the Apache, he, he told his relative, the very last words he said is, he said, I made a mistake surrendering. I should have fought to the death. It was their honor. And they, most of them did fight to the death. What happened to him? He actually was uh, imprisoned in a fort and then had a sad life going back and forth between reservations. And he was not a warrior. He was a medicine man. He was more the spiritual representative, but he was trying to negotiate with the cavalry. And at that point, the Apache had already done so many atrocities because they had had atrocities done to them. And it was just a no-win situation where, you know, they kept getting attacked by the white people, the cavalry, first the Spanish and then the English. And so the, the Apaches would retaliate. And even when they tried to negotiate a peace settlement, two men showed up saying that they had the protection of uh, surrender. And one of them was just assass assassinated by the cavalry people. So again, the Apache went on the war path. So it's one of those sad stories. And many indigenous people have these sad stories where if they can't assimilate into the new the society that is surrounding them, they had to either be broken or annihilated. And so it, there's, there's nothing happy about this story. So we wanted to honor Cochise and uh, uh, Geronimo's people by following their story and really trying to understand how it happened. And uh, it's, it was like a, not so much of a history thing, but I love the indigenous people and they have a lot to teach us, but I also know that being a yogi, you have to be flexible in life. You have to be able to bend and to, and to be in the flow of life. And when things are changing, like when the computers came into the world, so many people said, oh, I'll never have a computer. Well, I never did. I said, I'm going to embrace computers and, and get my message out to the world instead of just this little tiny town that I live in. So unfortunately, the indigenous people with the Apaches did not do that. And so most of them were annihilated. Would the indigenous Aboriginals or the Native Americans in America, would they have experienced the same as what our indigenous Aboriginals in Australia would have experienced with the, the stolen generation? Did you have anything like that over there? Yes. For us here in Australia, it was between 1910 and the 1970s. So that was really wasn't that long ago when it ended, the 1970s. Uh, the First Nation children were taken away from their families and faced to, to, to basically breed oh, out. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Just so much is being revealed now about, for instance, the amount of Indigenous children that were either succumbed to illnesses or, or maybe abuse, that they went to these Indigenous schools where they were trying to be 
you know, acclimated to the white person's way, but instead they died. There's a lot of knowledge that's coming out now about the atrocities. And, you know, there, it's a time of retribution and a time of honesty. And I'm very involved with the indigenous people of America and most specifically with the Pueblo people. Now the Pueblos are just the opposite of the Apache. The Apache were war, warlike guys, and they came and they even killed other indigenous. Whereas the Pueblos, they came first. They went to their mesas and they had the stability of staying there and being peaceful and doing spiritual work. They were not warlike people. So the Pueblos today, I, they assimilated. They assimilated into what was happening around them. Whereas the Apache said, no, we're going to fight to the very last man. And, you know, Geronimo was the last. So the indigenous today are becoming more and more involved with the higher um, administration of humanity. Like, for instance, I'm very involved with Harvard University. I used to work there as a botanical illustrator. And I go there occasionally and a lot of indigenous people are getting high degrees in law medicine science business you know they're becoming much more involved in the white person's life rather than just saying okay i'm going to just live on the reservation like my grandparents did or my parents even so the young indigenous people are becoming more and more part of our society the white person society. Like I live in a town, it's called St. Augustine, which bills itself as the oldest city in America. And when I hear people say that, I'll say, excuse me, the Pueblo Indians towns have been there for 4,000, 5,000 years. This is just the oldest white person city. Let's get that straight. <laughs> <laughs> with um, your thoughts on the reserves and and how the indigenous were pretty much made to live on these reserves do you think that it it was necessary for the indigenous to actually evolve with the westerners was it was it giving them a choice from your perspective well it has to do with the evolution of humanity and like I said, I'm very involved with the indigenous. And one of my good friends, his name is Patouche. He's a historian of the Akuma, which is the Pueblo Indians of, of his tribe. And he's involved with all indigenous throughout the world. And he's a very enlightened guy. And we talk about that a lot, how the indigenous people are an the other people who are non-Indigenous, we are all merging. It's just like the Blacks and the Whites and the Chinese and the Japanese. We are all interbreeding, interconnecting, intermingling, and we are all going to be just one global human family within a very short time. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this idea of separation is on its way out. You know, like that's the trouble with Putin. Putin is a madman. He's a demented dictator. What he's doing is saying that, oh, no, we Russians are so important that we have to wipe out, you know, anybody who's not going to be what we are. So that's old ideology 
And this war in the Ukraine is like the showdown of that because it's just antiquated. And hopefully it will not evolve into World War III. We're all hoping, we're all praying, you know, we're all holding our breath. But the reality of it is there are so many people who have this awakened consciousness. And there are so many people who are never going to go back to that idea of separation that the indigenous are going to be part of what other people are. It's just like my culture. My, I'm half first-generation immigrant from Lithuania, and my father's people came on the second load of pilgrims. So he was an early American. I'm a total, what I call American mutt. I'm a mongrel. I'm both of the old and the new. Mm-hmm. And I have indigenous in my history because of my father's people being back in the days of the early settlement here and everybody mingled with the indigenous then. They just did. So I, the answer to that question is, my first book is called We Are One. There is no separation where we're headed. And right now the remnants were working out the last vestiges like the uh, the movement of the me too movement and the uh, black lives matter movement is the last of this stuff that we have to work out so that everybody just chills and realizes that we are one global family mm-hmm. that's beautiful does that make Tessa. sense to you yeah it makes a lot of sense <laughs> it's wonderful yeah. i love that perspective <laughs> That's my, that's my truth. I mean, I can see it happening and where I, I mean, I, I'm 74. It's happening. I'm not just like wishing it to happen. There are so many people who have awakened to higher consciousness. I mean, just look how popular yoga is. You look at any magazine, they even have insurance ads showing people doing yoga and business people doing yoga. And And when people do yoga, you know, I forgot to mention this when we're talking about yoga, even if somebody knows nothing about spirituality, when you're doing these poses, you're moving your spine in such a way that all the chakras are being ignited. So even if somebody doesn't say, oh, yeah, I'm a spiritual person, they are getting spiritualized just by the fact that they're moving their spine in yoga poses and the chakras are, are doing the work for them. It's, it's, it's just automatic. Fantastic. Well, I'll leave it there, Tessa. Thank you so much for your time. I loved everything we talked about. Yoga, we even talked about Indigenous Native Americans and Aboriginals here in, in Australia. So that's great. And uh, your new book that you soon will be releasing. I can't wait till that's been, well, that will be out on, on shelves and yeah, really. Yeah. That sounds like a really good read. Sounds intriguing. Well, yeah. So I invite everybody to visit my website, tessalord.com, and sign up because I call the work that I'm doing the army of love. And so if you sign up on my list, I'll keep you informed about what's happening and when the book is coming out and other things. Awesome. Thank you so much. And how else can people find you? They can find you on your YouTube channel and and how else? Yeah, the YouTube channel. Don't forget the seven chakras. It's called Ageless Yoga. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and Medium and always with my name, Tessa Ward. And it's 
you're the only Tesla Lord, so you're very easy to find. I, too. <laughs> I actually, I actually heard somebody was Tesla Lord in the UK, although that that was a rumor I heard. I don't know, but my name is spelled with a Z, T E Z A. I think it was a Tessa, which I always correct people when they call me Tessa. I'll say no, no, I got a Z in there. Z Lord. <laughs> Z Lord is the podcast, and that's another thing. The podcast is really a fun thing because my husband and I are really we we have a good time. You, know, you can tell we talk about <laughs> yeah we talk about pretty serious stuff, but we always have a really interesting slant on it. And you know, I never thought I would ever find a man who was so interesting. But Carter and I have been married for thirty years now, and it's just like wow, it's like I just met this guy. He's so interesting to me. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, Tezza, for connecting with me. And it was wonderful chat. Thank you, Esther. And uh, I look forward to yeah, hearing from you great. again in the future. Okay. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that concludes the episode with Tezza Lord on yoga, divine flow of the Shakti. And... Remember, people, have an open heart, have an open mind, live your life and take your dog to yoga classes. Or why not get naked? Get naked and do yoga or get into some stilettos and do some yoga classes. Why not go to beer yoga? Go to beer yoga, go get drunk do your yoga poses no don't do that i think that's actually very bad bad idea that is bad juju that is bad frequency vibration do not do it uh it's wrong <laughs> i'm putting my foot down on that one do not do beer yoga please uh, anyway have an open heart have an open mind live your life and be free Thanks for tuning in.